You're watching A Court Leader's Advantage, a video podcast for court professionals and by court professionals. Brought to you by thecourtleader.net in cooperation with NACOM, the National Association for Court Management. This week, we're continuing our conversation with our panel. What is the key to effective communication, particularly during the pandemic? I'm Pete Kiefer, and welcome to the Court Leaders Advantage podcast series. This week, our panel covers topics including rumors and misinformation, the importance of virtual water cooler time, and the challenge of delivering unwelcome news. But you'll remember that I also asked you to contact us with your thoughts on what is the key to effective communication. We received some great ideas, so we asked several folks to record their thoughts for us. So here are LaShawn Thompson in Oklahoma City, Joshua Larson in Iowa, and Stacey Werby in Alaska, giving us their advice on what makes for effective communication during the pandemic. What I believe is the key to effective communication, it is transparency and continuous communication. This pandemic has been tough on all jurisdictions, places of business, and things of that nature. Whether you're communicating to the internal or external customer, it's important that you're transparent in your communication, you're consistent, and your communication is updated on a regular basis. So it is essential that people are receiving the most pertinent information. They shouldn't have to read several different press releases or correspondence or letters or, you know, kind of find things on the website. The most prevalent information should be communicated to our internal and our external customers. Effective communication during the pandemic has proven challenging. I think it needs to be consistent, diverse, honest, but also factual to be relied upon and used by the intended audience. We probably have communicated in ways during the pandemic that we haven't. Chat, video, and email over phone and in person. And it's required everyone to be more authentic and honest in uh, asking for help and also in improving how we've communicated with each other. Be willing to try different and novel ways to reach your audience and use more than one way to communicate and make sure your messaging is consistent. Keep employees apprised of messaging sent to the public and to partner agencies. For example, if you use social media to inform the public of a policy, also send an email to employees, letting them know the message that you are giving to the public. And lastly, give people who are not otherwise involved with planning an idea of what is going into the planning. For example, if a team is meeting weekly to discuss pandemic-related issues, let your staff know that and when they may expect information to come from that team. My thanks to LaShawn, Joshua, and Stacy. Now let's join our co-host and our panel to continue our conversation. My co-host today is Alice Roberts with the Alaska Court System. We're joined today by Zanelle Brown, Executive Court Administrator for the Third Circuit Court in Detroit, Michigan. Rick Pierce, Judicial Programs Administrator for the Pennsylvania Administrative Office of the Courts. T.J. Bement, District Court Administrator for the 10th Judicial District in Athens, Georgia. 
and Liz Rambo, Trial Court Administrator for the Lane County Circuit Court in Eugene, Oregon. Thank you all for joining today's podcast. Rumors are often a challenge, particularly during a crisis like a pandemic. Some folks address them head on, others try to ignore them. How did you approach rumor control? And do you have an example of how your approach worked? Zanel? So for rumor control, we have two big examples. One would be our jury services when we were returning to jury trials. And the other is when staff needed to return to work. What staff needed to return to work? How often did they need to work? To, we were trying to be preventative. So we reached out to our unions and we said, hey, can we meet with the union leadership to lay out the plan? So we told them who would return to work and why, how many days a week. We also had to share with them what our safety protocols were and assure them that we had PPE and all of that in place. And I believe that was very helpful that staff, I, I believe on the first day they were probably still a little skeptical, but once they got into the building, they saw that what we promised we had delivered on and that we were taking into consideration that everybody could not return to work and socially distance. As far as jury services, what we did, the return to trials, we did a press release. We did an article in our local uh, bar association journal. We did some focus groups with people who viewed our um, video that we did for jury services. And then we also updated our jury summons. So when you received that summons, you knew what to expect. You knew where to call if you had a challenge. So I think both of those examples show where communication was effective. The flip side of internal rumors is misinformation, sometimes by the media, sometimes by the general public. Now, I've heard stories that have ranged from the courthouse is not safe for jurors to groups trying to disrupt Zoom court hearings. Did you have to deal with public misinformation? And if so, what did you do? TJ? One of the biggest sort of miscommunications and misinformation out there was when we had uh, over the late spring and into the summer, a lot of the, the protests around the country and many of them in, in a lot of jurisdictions were centered around courthouses. And it's not that the courthouses per se were the subject of that attention, it's just that, as we well know, working in the, in the judiciary, often our courthouses are the center of downtown. We're right next to a place. And more often than not, one can identify a government building because it looks like a courthouse, more so than a nondescript office building next door, which houses city or county offices or whatnot. So one of the big pieces of about misinformation was, you know, is the courthouse going to get ransacked? Is the is there going to be protests at the courthouse? And the answer was, we, again, communicated with staff. Um, in our state, we were able to get from our, our Bureau of Investigation um, that gave out notices of what they were hearing because they followed sort of the media uh, and, and what was going on out there and, and sort of the social media and passed that on to us so that we could then pass it on to our judges and our court staff to say, here's what is happening. Here's what we know. Here's what is going on. And also... Part of it was advising our staff on what involvement is appropriate for them or not per our ethical requirements of being involved in this, you know, and most often they can, but they have to do so in, in an appropriate manner. So a lot of that was really just sharing that information again with our court staff throughout the state and just keeping people in the loop. And, and again, I think as, as Liz and others said, having that, that water cooler talk at the beginning of our meetings 
was an opportunity to just share information because things were constantly changing over the last year from the state level, from the federal level, from the local level, and really just keeping good information at folks' fingertips so that they can handily have it ready for reference and just being open and answering those questions as they came in. Liz? I didn't really have a public misinformation situation, but I did have an agency misinformation uh, situation. So early on, Oregon had very low rates of COVID and very low um, impact on employers. And we didn't have any cases until I think midsummer. And the first case that we had from an employee really took us off guard, but the situation was very limited. That employee had only a couple hours of contact with only just a few internal coworkers who we immediately quarantined and did everything for. They had zero public contact, zero agency partner contact, no contact with anybody. But one of the local agencies found out about it and started telling everybody that we had an outbreak at the courthouse. <laughs> and I was getting calls from people, including the municipal court administrator here in town about our outbreak and how are we handling it? And how are we continuing to go when we didn't have any employees left here to work because we had this outbreak, which was very confusing to me because we hadn't had an outbreak. And as a matter of fact, it was so limited in terms of the time that the person was here that it wasn't even really a, nobody else got sick. Mm -hmm. So what I did in response to that was really up my communication. And I specifically told all of our agency partners exactly what information I would share with them when we had an employee who became ill with COVID. And that was an emerging topic at the time with administrators around the state. So it really was an opportunity for me to sort of codify that, put in writing, let everybody know, here's exactly what I'm going to do. And so they wouldn't be calling each other and telling everybody that we had this outbreak. I mean, I had people refusing coming to the courthouse because of our outbreak. <laughs> I want to jump back in on this because it, sure. it, it does raise an interesting question of, in those early months in from last spring, probably into summer, with the misinformation around the virus, and especially um, in a lot of states like our own that took mask wearing and some other of the preventive measures to be an issue of politics rather than an issue of public health. And, and I have to applaud our Chief Justice in our state who really made it clear that's not an option whether our state was going and, and suing individual cities to forbid them from requiring masks, our judiciary stepped in and said, masks, if you're going to be in the courthouse. And because we recognize, and I think here's the key for all of us in the courts, we were open the whole time. We never shut down other than for minor outbreaks when we had to shut down to clean for a day or two. But as a whole, most of our courts in the country stayed open, at least for some variation of the central operations. And our judiciary, and I'm sure many took the, the stance of the folks that have to be here in court for those essential operations, the staff and the litigants that are here, aren't here of their own free will. We are here because of the criminal, because of arraignments and bonds, folks that aren't here willingly. So we need to, to demonstrate what is required and what is best practice. So the wearing of masks, the doing of social distance. I think even still to this day, our courthouses are probably one of the safest places to be from a public health perspective 
because we did recognize that early on because we knew that we had to, to represent that process for the rest of the folks that came before us. So really reinforcing whatever rumors and misinformation may be out there about COVID and the spread and you know social distancing, it doesn't matter. We're gonna do it right when it comes to how we're gonna do operations in the court. And I think mm-hmm. hearing a, a lot of my colleagues from around the country, most of our courts really did embrace that. So I'm, I'm very proud to be part of that process. One of the most difficult challenges in communication is delivering unwelcome news. A current example is that at the beginning of the pandemic, many courts were facing severe budget reductions. Later, in some courts, those fears were allayed. Tell us about a time you had to communicate unwelcome news to staff, and how did the employees receive it? Rick? Well, Peter, I think my example will be, how did I receive the unwelcome news as well? Or how did I find out about it? And I think this is one misconception or a a mistake sometimes that leadership makes at the highest level. And that's the, the, the intent and desire to control the message, which we understand that's necessary, but there becomes a point where if you keep that control of that message, depending upon the, the content of that message, the rumor mill will continue to circulate, which is a lot more damaging or can be a lot more damaging at times than worrying about a, a mistake in the information if it's relayed to another individual and then relayed to another individual and so on. So I think that that's where we have run into the greatest fear in in Pennsylvania, my example of that unwelcome news, and it's still not uh, resolved yet, and it is, has, does have to deal with budgetary restrictions, is our case management system that has been in place for the better part of 15 years, uh, criminal case management system, and then we have other case management systems that tie off of it. And There's, in in large part over the last several years, that has been predominantly funded by user fees of the courts, which are very distasteful to all of us and very distasteful to the court in Pennsylvania, but that's what the General Assembly has relied, has has told us to rely on predominantly. And unfortunately, uh, not only are those user fees uh, having a sunset this year, although, I mean, that can always be extended, it is also dependent upon other additional funding from the General Assembly and the governor's office. So they're not to put the, the, the blame on one particular branch of government, but that has not been done yet. And so we have the great fear and it's the great unknown as to what will happen if this case management system is no longer adequately funded and sufficiently funded. Because if it is not, and we have to shut down that uh, statewide case management system not as it only going to impact the individuals in the information technology at, the, at our office at AOPC, it's going to impact the district courts and their abilities, their, the requirement they will have to come up with a case management system on their own. So I know I'm going down a little bit of a rabbit hole here to talk about a specific example, but this is the bad news that's out there that hasn't been fully resolved yet but I think what's important is at least for people to know that it exists. This was one thing that I will say, for the most part, we have done a, a good job. I, you know, my personal opinion would have liked to have seen this information come out a little earlier than it did, but it is out there. And so the, all the courts in the Commonwealth are aware of this potential shortfall and the significant ramifications that will come with that shortfall if it does indeed take place. 
So it's important to get that message out there and, and have those need to receive it, internalize it as quickly as possible. Have you got a plan of action that you're taking to respond to this? We have responded already to the General Assembly and to the governor's office about restoring the funding. We've also alerted the district courts at the county level to prepare that the one thing we will have in our favor, although it's not much of a window, that should they pull the plug this July as far as funding and not restore it, uh, they, we will be able to keep the case management system running for another 18 months, but it will be cease and desist by December of 2022. Mm -hmm. Here, this is all still conjecture because the General Assembly and the governor's office could decide to uh, sufficiently fund it and we'll be fine. So, mm -hmm. but this is, this is the, the unwelcome news that you're, you're referring to. Sunil? Our unwelcome news as well still relates to the budget. Our county gave us some very negative projections for this year. And because of that, that means that we had to curtail some of our spending, which means not filling some of the vacancies, not being able to provide our staff with, you know, raises and bonuses, that type of thing. So we were able to not lay off staff, but we did have to let them know that some of the things that we were looking forward to as far as moving the conversation forward regarding salaries, we can't do at this point in time. Um, that we're still committed to it, but we can't see how we can get it across and get the funding agent to approve it at this point. Mm -hmm. So we'll still look to see if there's some other things that we can do, but just being very upfront that at this moment, it's not going to happen. I, I'd like to add a little something to that. Um, you know, I was talking about the steps to effective communication earlier, where you sort of preload conversations and then you have them and then you afterload I have lots of experience communicating negative information to staff over the years. And when that happens, I never skip a step. I always tell people what I think might be coming within reason, like I realistically what might be coming. I tell them what I know. I tell them what I don't know, honestly. Then when it's getting closer, I tell them some more about what I know and what I don't know, honestly. And we follow up because that's the time when you never skip those steps, even through the COVID. The, those are steps I haven't skipped with the, with the bad news. Just because management is communicating with staff, it doesn't mean that the communication is effective. How do you ensure that your communication is effective? Rick? Well, Alice, that's the $64,000 question. Uh, you know, if we knew the answer to this, I think that would prove that uh, great leadership is, is at hand. I will start out by just saying, I think, some of my fellow panelists will address the issue of the use of social media, but we can, because we're going to need to use the tool of social media since many of our staff receive their communication and, or want to use that medium as their primary communication tool. So we need to become better at that in the courts. And, and I think we're using it, at least in Pennsylvania, as, as a means of just press releasing and promoting courts and instead of expecting some one-to-one -one or one back or feedback communication, like 2.0 type of communication. But I will say that effective communication to me is a two-way street. How is it received by your audience? How do they internalize the message? How do they properly address the expectations that are laid out in communication? Because that's what is really effective communication is it, it's the message is implied to have series of expectations 
is that are those expectations understood and internalized by the person receiving it? If they're not, and that's quite understandable, they're either dependent upon the amount of messages that you're receiving or the, the type of message then, or the distractions that are going on when the person receives this message, whether they have a, a ton of emails in their inbox or they have other people talking in their ear, you know, dependent upon what it, the communication is. And we have seen it be more difficult now in a period of isolation because now we've removed for the most part, not completely, but for the most part, that in-person communication or at least the in-person communication of one to many. You can have one-to-one, but not necessarily one-to-many. I think what TJ said is I, I would really emphasize this point too regarding how do we ensure effective communication he talked about over-communicating. I, I use the word constant communication, and I think that's absolutely essential and something that you'll have to find out from the people who are receiving the messages from in my state as to whether we're doing a good job or, or not, because I think we can do better. I think we have not been communicating constantly as well as communicating the consistently accurate message because communication is all centered around trust and we have to, and I'm not saying that we don't have a level of trust, but in order for effective communication to take place, there has to be a level, a high level of trust between the, uh, the sender and the receiver. And so I think the way you get that is by having that constant communication. Okay, thank you. So now? I would add to what, what Rick was saying. Also make sure that you're allowing and inviting the opportunity for questions. Oftentimes when we're sending something out from the management team, multiple eyes and ears will take a, a look or listen to it. And we believe that it's very clear, but like you said, the distractions or other things going on, the sender may not receive it the way that we intended. So we definitely have to make sure that we create a space where that person feels that it's okay to ask questions. And we're welcoming those questions because it gives us an opportunity to clarify what the intent is. And if it's a question where we don't have the answer, just be very honest. We don't have the answer or we, I can't share that with you yet. Something's in the works. And when I can share it, I'll come back and share it with you. All right. Thanks, Danelle. And Liz? I agree. It's sort of the $60,000 question, isn't it? I, I'm not sure if what we're doing is effective. I mean, we know the adult learning styles for good communication. Tell them what you're going to tell them. Tell them, tell them what you told them. Which in a perfect world, when you have plenty of time, we'd all be doing. We'd all be doing that follow-up, that initiation and that follow-up. But I have to admit through the, through the pandemic, I have barely time to get the message out most of the time. So the, I know for a fact that's probably not effective because my preferential way to do things is to tell people what's coming, tell them that it's here, and then follow up afterwards and say, how did that go? And that hasn't been possible. So I just keep trying to keep my ear to the ground we have weekly supervisor meetings where I ask how are things going. I try to follow up on communications that I've sent out, find out if they've heard from staff about anything that needs follow-up or further work, and just be open, like Sunel was saying, to feedback and questions whenever opportunities arise. Thank you. TJ. Well, I appreciate Liz's honesty there. I think that is a reality that I myself and I'm sure others have faced over the last year and wanting to communicate the right way and, and not knowing either how to do it or knowing if how we communicated was uh, effective. You know, I can just go back to the adage of multiple ways of communication. You know, if I 
if I had a Zoom conversation with somebody about their feedback or their work product or something, <laughs> is to just follow up with them at the next interaction or you know, send them an email afterwards. Or now that we've opened up the world of sort of text communication between managers and supervisors and, and line staff, you know, even following up with a text, say, hey, how you doing? Just want to make sure, you, you know, you're following up on, you know, whatever that I gave you yesterday. Um, I think it does blur a little bit of that work-life balance. But, um, you know, until we find out the new paradigm and how to do this the best, I, I think it's just, you know, multiple ways of communication to see uh, what works. Thank you, TJ. I, I just want to add, uh, you know, Zanel's comment about making sure people feel comfortable to ask questions. I think that's so important. And I think the way you deliver that message that, you know, please let me know if you have questions is there are a few folks here in Alaska that I think of during the legislative session. we've been, we've had hard budget times in recent years and staff that causes a lot of anxiety for staff. And the two folks who represent us down in Juneau, when they tell staff, look, if you have any questions, just pick up the phone. We'd love to hear from you. You know, it's the way they let people know that you're, you know, you are welcome to ask questions. I think how you let them know is important. And then the other thing that kind of occurs to me in terms of communication is I think we have to respect people's time. We don't want to bombard their email boxes. We don't want to schedule meetings when we, you know, we really don't have a need to meet. I think it's that balance again. I just, I think all of your comments were great. And those were some of the things that came to mind as you were speaking. Thank you. I want to thank Zanelle Brown, Rick Pierce, TJ Bement, and Liz Rambo for their thoughts about effective communication and court administration. This topic continues to provoke discussion and new ideas. Also, again, thanks to LaShawn, Joshua, and Stacy for their insights. My thanks finally to my co-host, Alice Roberts, for her perceptive questions and observations. As always, my thanks to you, court professionals, for watching today's episode. You are an essential element in effective communication. It is your skill and ability that makes communication work. Join us in May for another episode dealing with the issues that face our courts. This has been the Court Leaders Advantage podcast series. I'm Pete Kiefer. And thanks for listening. Thanks for joining us today. The Court Leaders Advantage is a regular podcast on courts and court administration. Today's episode will be available on our website, on YouTube, on Facebook, on iTunes, on Instagram, and on Twitter. Become part of the conversation. If you have questions, comments, or ideas for future episodes, email us. Our address is podcast. that's all one word, at nakamnet.org. Did you hear an interesting comment by one of the panelists that you'd like to listen to again, but you don't want to search the entire episode to find it? The additional resources section on the web page contains a question time marker sheet. Just find the discussion question on the sheet, and next to it is the time that question was asked. You can then quickly fast forward to that time in the episode and listen to the panelists' comments. Remember, if you don't have time to watch an episode, you can always listen to the audio version. Listen in your car or on the bus on your way to and from work. You never have to miss an episode. I'm Pete Kiefer, and on behalf of our guests, the Court Leader website, 
and the National Association for Court Management. Thanks for watching. The views, information, and opinions expressed during this episode are solely those of the host and the individual presenters. They do not necessarily represent the position of the National Association for Court Management.